welcome to SNC's podcast series, SNC Critical Insights. I'm Ben Perry, a partner in SNC's London office specialising in M&A. I'm joined today by my partner Juan Rodriguez, also based in our London office, who specialises in antitrust. Today, Juan and I are going to be discussing what we think are some of the key considerations, in particular for M&A transactions, which have arisen since the end of the Brexit transition period. Every transaction is obviously different, and how the end of the Brexit transition period may impact any given situation will depend on the particular facts of that situation. Therefore, what we're going to talk about today are some of the general themes that may apply to future transactions going forward. We're recording this podcast against a political backdrop where relations between the UK and EU are still far from settled, notwithstanding the entry into the new trade and cooperation agreement between the UK and EU at the end of last year. There are three good examples of this. First, the trade and cooperation agreement is still only being applied on a provisional basis because the European Parliament has not yet ratified it. Second, even once the trade and cooperation agreement has been ratified, there will still be ongoing negotiations between the UK and EU for months, if not years, about the implementation of various features of the agreement, including customs checks on goods arriving and leaving the UK, as well as on matters that are not covered by the agreement, such as the future arrangements for the financial services industry. Third, there have also been a number of well-publicised disagreements between the UK and EU in recent weeks on other matters, in particular relating to the supply of COVID-19 vaccines, although that situation appears to be in the process of being calmed. All of this, however, just goes to show how the new relationship between the UK and EU is going to continue to keep evolving for years to come. Let me start by asking Juan, what impact has the end of the transition period had on merger control notifications, which are obviously a key feature of M&A transactions? Thank you, Ben. The main impact has been the fact that since January 1st of this year, the UK has no longer been part of the EU's so-called one-stop shop for merger control. Essentially, the one-stop shop means that a merger which meets the jurisdictional thresholds for notification to the European Commission under the EU merger regulation will, once it's been filed with the Commission, not have to be filed with any EU member state national merger control authorities. This one-stop shop is generally a good thing for transactions because it avoids parties having to make multiple filings in different EU member states. This is still the case for the 27 member states of the EU, all of which, except Luxembourg, have their own national merger control laws. However, for all new deals where the target has EU and UK revenue above the relevant antitrust filing thresholds, the parties need to consider whether, as well as filing with the European Commission, it's worthwhile to file with the UK Competition and Markets Authority, which we'll refer to as the CMA. You would then be in a situation where the Commission and the CMA would be reviewing the transaction in parallel under different timetables and potentially applying different standards of review. There's also a subset of transactions those which were filed with the EU Commission before the end of 2020, to which this one-stop shop still applied. However, no new transactions will fall into that category. Thank you, Juan. What you say about parallel reviews in the EU and the UK is potentially very significant for M&A, I think, because what we've started to see in the last few years, and I think that was also a development that was accentuated by Brexit, 
is the CMA publicly stating that it will take a tougher line on mergers, and that's as part of its wider duty to promote competition for the benefit of UK consumers. What examples of that have we seen recently? So there really is no doubt that the CMA is setting out to make a name for itself as a tough and independent authority that does not shy away from reviewing transactions rigorously on the basis of its mandate to investigate mergers to ensure that they don't result in a substantial lessening of competition. This is corroborated by the CMA's hit rate. During 2019 and 2020, there were 16 transactions in total that were either abandoned by the parties following an adverse CMA review or were formally blocked by the CMA. And this trend has continued into 2021. The proposed merger of two UK-based crowdfunding platforms, Cedars and Crowdcube, was abandoned just the day after the CMA had issued its provisional findings, which were in favour of blocking the transaction. Thank you, Juan. From my perspective, one of the key differences between the CMA and other regulators is that while filing with the CMA is voluntary, the CMA also has independent powers to call in for investigation a deal that meets the UK thresholds. And really what that means is that the CMA doesn't have to process routine merger control filings, and instead it concentrates its resources on the deals where it can make more of an impact. How does that work in practice? So as you've highlighted, the UK merger control system is very different from most other merger control systems in the world, except for a few which are based on the UK model. And those are Australia, New Zealand and Singapore. And I would put the differences really into three main categories. First of all, the CMA has broad powers to assert jurisdiction, either on the basis of the target's UK revenue, and the threshold is £70 million by the target in the UK for most sectors, but going down to only £1 million by the target for sensitive sectors, or, and this is perhaps more of interest broadly, using the CMA's frankly not-so-secret weapon, the share of supply test, which has a 25% threshold. And this test is similar to a market share test, but it's much looser and broader and allowing the CMA unlimited jurisdiction to segment markets and use any metric the CMA wants to get to the 25% threshold. For example, this includes in a recent case, the number of patents that had been filed in the UK by the merging parties in a certain area, or that even the number of employees engaged in certain activities in the UK by the merging parties. So even though it's framed as a share of supply test, it's much broader in its application than supply in the true sense. Secondly, there is the aspect that you've already referred to, which is that this is a voluntary filing regime, coupled with the power for the CMA to call in transactions that were not filed voluntarily. That calling in mechanism is one which the UK government considers to have been very effective. And it's therefore now also being used in other contexts, specifically the UK National Security and Investment Bill, which we'll be discussing in another podcast. Third, there is the process itself. There are really three main features of the process, which are quite different from the merger control processes of other authorities. Firstly, the CMA's timeline is longer than for other authorities. For example, the CMA has 40 working days to carry out a phase one investigation. 
while many other authorities have a calendar month or 25 working days to do that. Second, the investigative process is burdensome and invasive, and it calls for extensive document production and interrogation on the acquirer's rationale for acquiring the target, even including detailed scrutiny by the CMA of the premium paid by the acquirer for the target. And thirdly, although the deal can close ahead of CMA approval, if the CMA does investigate, it imposes an initial enforcement order that prevents integration and requires the acquirer to hold the target separate from the seller. And that's really the worst of all worlds for the buyer, having paid the purchase price, but then being unable to begin synergy capture. Thank you, Juan. I'd like to pick up on one aspect of the trade and cooperation agreements between the UK and the EU. There's been a lot of discussion about the concept of a level playing field, and there are some areas where the UK and EU have committed in the trade and cooperation agreements to maintaining comparable legal and regulatory frameworks. How does merger control fit into this? The trade and cooperation agreement only deals with merger control very briefly via Firstly, some very high-level principles, which the UK and EU have agreed to abide by. And secondly, provisions relating to cooperation between their authorities. Really, the bottom line is that the UK and EU will be free to diverge, and they are already starting from a point where the UK and EU regimes are quite different, as we've just discussed. So while the trade and cooperation agreement itself won't make much difference in practice to merger control, I expect that we're going to see further divergence in the years to come. That's a very good point you make about further divergence, and I think it's something that has much wider relevance beyond merger control. And that's because what's been happening in the UK really over several years leading up to the end of the transition period is a long-running process for what lawyers call onshoring EU law into UK domestic law. And the effect of this was that all the EU law which had previously been applied in the UK by virtue of the UK's membership of the EU, and we call that retained EU law, all of that was brought into force in UK law in its own right as of the end of the transition period. So while there are some areas where divergence is constrained by the level playing field provisions of the trade and cooperation agreements, I think that over time, what we'll see is increased divergence between UK and EU laws across a wide range of areas. As an example, in the last couple of months, we've already seen the UK government state publicly that it was reviewing the retained EU law in the employment space and consulting with businesses on potential changes. And then the government announced a few days later that this review was no longer happening. However, even though the immediate plans to review employment law have been shelved for now, it's highly likely that the UK government will come back to this in the future. And as I said, that's just one example, and there will inevitably be other areas where this happens as part of an ongoing process. One last question for you, Juan. What practical steps do you recommend that parties take to try and deal with the changes in the merger control environment that we've been discussing today? So in this dynamic environment, start the work on evaluating merger control requirements and possible risks as early as possible. Thank you, Juan. That's the end of today's podcast. Thank you from both Juan and myself to all of you for listening. We hope that you and your loved ones stay safe and well. Mm